Welcome to Bizarre Tales. My name is Zek. Today we are going to be talking about the 1971 hijacking of a Boeing 727 airplane perpetrated by a man commonly known as D.B. Cooper in Portland, Oregon. Before we begin, I want to address the elephant in the room known as D.B. The probably fake name he gave was actually Dan Cooper. However, a local reporter named James Long, working for the Oregon Journal, coined the now infamous initials entirely by mistake. In interviews given in the years since, Long has said that it was stormy and loud in Portland at the time and he couldn't hear his contact at the airline very well. He doesn't know how he did it, but he landed on the name D.B. Cooper and rushed to write up the story before his deadline. I will not be calling him D.B. anymore beyond this point. On November 24, 1971, the day before Thanksgiving, a man calling himself Dan Cooper uses cash to buy a one-way ticket to Seattle, a 30-minute flight. Cooper boards the plane and sits down, with most agreeing he sat in seat 18C. He is described as being in his 40s, wearing a stereotypical business suit, he was between 5 foot 10 inches and 6 feet even, and he had no noticeable accent. The flight took off at 2.05, and soon after, Dan Cooper handed the nearest flight attendant a note. The flight attendant assumed he was a fuckboy trying to get a date or something, so she stuffed the note into her purse without opening it. Dan Cooper leaned over to her and said, Miss, you'd better read that note. I have a bomb. The exact contents of the note are unclear because Cooper eventually took the note back. Cooper told the flight attendant to sit next to him and she complied, and she asked to see the bomb. Cooper opened his briefcase long enough for her to see what she described as eight red cylinders, four on top of four, attached to wires coated with red insulation and a battery. When her description was given to the FBI, they noted that dynamite sticks are typically brown or beige, and that the red cylinders were likely road flares, but they could not be certain. Dan Cooper then gave his demands. $200,000, about $1.3 in today's money four parachutes, two primary and two reserve, and a fuel truck waiting in Seattle to refuel the plane when it landed. The pilot, a man named William Scott, contacted air traffic control, who then informed local and federal authorities. The president of the airline authorized the ransom payment and ordered all employees on board to cooperate fully with Dan Cooper's demands. The remaining 36 passengers were given a fake story about minor mechanical difficulty that would delay their arrival in Seattle while the plane circled for two hours while the FBI gathered the ransom money, fuel trucks, and parachutes. Another flight attendant recalled that Dan Cooper seemed familiar with the area, even saying, looks like Tacoma down there, as the plane flew above it. Witnesses say he was calm and rather nice. Dan Cooper ordered a second bourbon, paid his drink tab, and attempted to tip the flight attendant. He even offered to request meals for the flight crew to be handed over with the money. Initially, Cooper was offered military-issue parachutes, but he declined, instead demanding civilian parachutes with manually operated ripcords, which the Seattle police got from a local skydiving school. At 5.24pm, Dan Cooper was told that his demands had been met, and soon after, the plane landed at Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Cooper told the pilot to taxi the plane to an isolated and well-lit area, and to close all window shades to avoid getting sniped. A Northwest Airline employee drove a company vehicle to the plane and brought him his parachutes and money, which was handed off to a flight attendant. Dan Cooper then let most employees and all passengers go, keeping only four employees in the cockpit as remaining hostages. Dan Cooper had outlined his plan to the cockpit crew. A southeast course to Mexico City at the minimum speed possible, approximately 115 miles per hour, and instructed pilots to stay at no higher than 10,000 feet. 
An FAA official requested an audience with Cooper to tell him the dangers of hijacking a plane, but Cooper had already made up his mind, so he declined. Once the plane was refueled, they took off once more. At around 7.40pm, the plane took off with just five passengers. Dan Cooper told the flight attendant to join the remaining hostages in the cockpit and to stay there with the door closed. She complied, but did see him tying something around his waist. At around 8pm, a warning light in the cockpit flashed, indicating that the stairs on the rear of the plane had been opened. At 10.15pm, the flight landed at Reno Airport. FBI, state troopers, sheriff's deputies, and Reno police surrounded the jet, but after an armed search, it was confirmed that Cooper was gone. On the plane, the FBI found Dan Cooper's black clip-on tie, his tie clip, and two of the four parachutes. One of the parachutes had been opened, and two of the suspension lines had been cut and removed. Five different military aircraft had been following the plane at different times, but nobody saw him jump, nor was he picked up by radar. Picking an exact area to search for Cooper was impossible, as the aircraft's speed and weather conditions could drastically change his landing point. It was determined that Dan Cooper likely jumped at 8.13pm, when the plane was flying over a heavy rainstorm over the Lewis River in southwest Washington. Searches began in Clark and Cowlitz counties, searching large areas of mountains by helicopter and by foot. Local farmhouses were searched door-to-door, -door, and other search parties searched local lakes with boats. Nothing was found. A month after the hijacking, the FBI released the serial numbers to banks, casinos, racetracks, and other businesses that handled cash transactions regularly. Nearly nine years later, on February 10, 1980, an eight-year-old boy named Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River, nine miles downstream of Cooper's reported drop zone. He uncovered three packets of the ransom cash, with the cash being severely disintegrated, but still being held in rubber bands. The FBI confirmed that the money was in fact some of the ransom money, and that the money was still in the order it was in when it was given to Cooper. To date, none of the remaining 9,710 bills have ever turned up. In late 2007, the FBI announced that they had obtained three DNA samples on Cooper's clip-on tie in 2001, but admitted that there was no way to tell who each sample belonged to. The FBI also tried to slip in the information that they gave Cooper three functional parachutes and one dummy training parachute. They did stress that this was done by accident, and literally zero people believed the FBI. Regardless, Cooper jumped with one primary parachute and one dummy parachute, cutting up another reserve parachute, probably to tie the money bag closed. In 2009, a man named Tom Kay, a paleontologist, assembled a team of citizen sleuths and reinvestigated the case using technology that didn't exist in 1971. In 2011, Kay announced that particles of pure titanium had been found on the tie. In the 1970s, titanium was really only used in metal fabrication or production facilities, though the titanium could be explained in a number of different ways. Between 1971 and today, the FBI has looked into over a thousand suspects, with nothing but circumstantial evidence linking them to the hijacking. Most of these were deathbed confessions or noted con men trying to cash in by telling the story. The FBI theorizes that Cooper took his alias from a Belgian comic book character with the same name who took part in Canadian Air Force misadventures and heroics, including parachuting. This is especially interesting because the comics were never translated to English or imported to America, so it's possible he came across them during a tour of duty in Europe. Cooper also seemed knowledgeable about airplanes, knowing how long refueling would take, how to open the rear stairs, and exactly which plane would make his heist easiest. So he seemed to have planned it all out, but what wasn't clear was how he intended on spending the money if he succeeded. It was common knowledge at the time that the police and the feds could easily keep track of the serial numbers on the bills given to him. 
The FBI seems to think he was not experienced at parachuting, concluding that nobody with experience would jump over a storm in the pitch black, also noting that he missed the supposedly clearly marked dummy reserve parachute they got him. In fact, the FBI from the beginning has believed that Dan Cooper did not survive his jump, but also admitted that they couldn't find anybody who vanished during the day of the hijacking. The world may never know what happened to Dan Cooper. Where did the money end up? Will someone stumble across his corpse high up in a tree one day? Did he perhaps survive his fall, realize he was an idiot, and ditch the remaining money he had left when he landed? What makes this case endlessly interesting is the very specific lack of information and the seemingly endless amount of speculation it attracts. I left out a long list of suspects from this because I wanted to give you only factual information. If you'd like some supplementary reading material about the case, I'd recommend looking into these suspects with as many air quotes as possible. Thank you for listening to Bizarre Tales. My name is Zek, and I don't have $200,000 hidden in my attic.